0: Stephanie Brobby practiced as a private wealth lawyer for over a decade, helping the super rich keep more of their money.
1: Advising people on setting up structures that would help to perpetuate kind of wealth accumulation, would help them um, transfer assets to the next generation. So,
0: sorry, so in layman's terms, you were helping rich people keep their money?
1: Essentially, yes.
0: Everything changed at a party.
1: I'm at this party and uh, a friend of mine walks in. He says the the three most harmful addictions in life are heroin, carbohydrates and a monthly paycheck.
0: She is now on a mission to help the super rich give up more of their money.
1: Goodness, it's the same people that own everything. (laughs) (laughs) Literally everything, you know.
0: I want more than just a piece. Wanna be heard from the west to the east. I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene The man have never mm-hmm. left my team 19, love the right creed Now nah, I'm not a rife breed, but I might be In my crease, now I'm kids hit up my G I'll still never sell out my theme Well, you know about heritage, you go in heritage Don't chill with the snakes but the flow, still venomous Perspective is everything, so much lemonade I don't know what a lemon is <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for being here Thank you for having me It's been a long time coming We've been trying to get this going since last year
1: Last year, yeah, yeah, no. yeah, it's no, been last year. yeah, it hasn't been a full year, but it yeah. was in the last year. This
0: is true. It was in the last calendar year. Yeah, um, you are in many ways my sort of perfect podcast guest. Oh, okay, because the world you work in, live in, move in it's a world that a lot of people know nothing about. Yeah. But I, I'm i convinced at the end of watching this or listening to this, folks would be like, oh my, what, this exists? Yeah. It's, what, it's one of those like, they live among us? You know, there's these people that kind of like, you know, are doing really cool things that people just don't know about. You're one of the guests who, I think it would be really interesting. I think we'll find out a lot about you from working out your transition mm-hmm. and how you actually got into mm-hmm. this work. Mm-hmm. So we've watched the video, we know a bit about kind of what you do, but exactly how did you get into it? And, and, and yeah, what, what are some of the lessons we can learn from that?
1: Yeah, um, it's always really, yeah, it's always really interesting for me, retelling the story of how I came into this work because yeah. it really reaffirms, you know, everything that I'm, I'm doing and is, but it also kind of makes me realise how crazy a transition it has been you know over the last few years so essentially I started out in life wanting to become a human rights lawyer quite early on so like when I was 16 yeah (laughs) was always having you know getting into arguments with people teachers my parents um and yeah I was just really uh kind of captivated by the pursuit of justice And uh, so I I set out to be a human rights lawyer. I studied law and I ended up uh, completing my degree. And I basically finished university and then ended up being offered a training contract at a firm in the city. Um, And it was just an incredible opportunity. So I kind of, well, I I diverted, I got diverted essentially into the city and didn't end up pursuing human rights, although I did have some experience of it. And uh, yeah, so I ended up going to law school and uh, training to become a solicitor at this firm in the city. And I ended up qualifying into private wealth, into private client law. And this was a surprise to me because I grew up in a working class community. My parents are Ghanaian migrants. You know, I had that uh, like a really classic kind of um, West African uh, migrant story kind of, yeah, coming of age, entry into the into the world in London. And I didn't have proximity to wealth, you know, um, in my own life. Um, you know, I, I I was surrounded by uh kind of neighbors uh on my street who had access to wealth when I moved when I was about twelve. But other than that than that, I had no kind of meaningful uh connection um to wealth and so it was a surprise to me that I ended up qualifying into this area that was essentially exclusively about advising people on setting up structures that would help to perpetuate kind of wealth accumulation would help them um transfer assets to the next generation and so,
0: sorry so in layman's terms you are helping rich people keep their money
1: Essentially, yes.
0: And not give it away. So
1: Yeah, I was really exclusively concerned with the preservation, supporting the preservation and accumulation of wealth gotcha. for a certain demographic, you know, a certain group of people in society and I guess um what ended up happening was this sort of decade-long education in kind of capital in the 21st century. I quickly began to realize oh my goodness, it's the same people that own everything. (laughs) Literally everything, you know, I I had, you know, before I became a private wealth lawyer, I'd never thought about uh, who owned a shopping mall when I was in a shopping mall or who, you know, you know, I'd never really thought about ownership. Uh, Maybe, you know, in the context of home ownership, because it was always an aspiration of mine because Mm. I'd experienced what it had been like to, um you know live in social housing and to to feel the uh the strain of like inadequate housing and um you know i i had experienced renting and um the the difficulties of of the private you know rental sector but i didn't really think more broadly about corporate ownership and um you know thinking more broadly about uh land and and real estate and I don't know intellectual property and all the you know the different ways that the law is set up yeah. to govern ownership and um, who owns these assets.
0: T- tell me a bit about some of the stuff you learned about ownership because people who are listening to this would have heard me talk about the mainstream media nauseum, the idea that the the media system in the UK there's really only about four middle-aged white men that basically control something like seventy-four percent of. Um, whether it's newspaper distribution, whether it's some of the broadcast channels, like it's the the concentration is pretty wild when it comes to the mainstream media. What are some of the stuff you saw, you know, vis-a-vis ownership that made you go, hold on a minute.
1: Well, I I guess I started to see a pattern of, you know, I, I described, you know, this thought that came to my head that, oh my goodness, it's the same people that own everything or have influence over everything. Because I started to see that it was the same actors, And their, you know, family members and their peers, you know, direct peers that maybe they went to university with or, you know, their parents know each other. There's this kind of circulation of many forms of capital. So, you know, financial capital, but also social capital Mm. um, who owned, you know, had substantial property holdings, residential property holdings, and uh, commercial real estate holdings. But those same people would also be on the boards of, you know, (laughs) listed companies, um, and as well as private companies, they'd also be on the boards of various charities. And so there's this this, uh, common thread that runs through ownership and influence in our society. And it's, you know, it's the same types of people that have control over, you know, whether it's narrative, over the flow of resources, over the flow of capital, um, and over ownership structures. Um, and then, you know, we think about the judiciary and we think about who makes our laws and, you know, it's the same kinds of people. And so I started to, I guess it was, um, you know, I started to build a picture of the system Um and yeah, this, who who is in that system and who is excluded from it.
0: Mm. So you're in the system, you're making waves, they're promoting you, you know, Stephanie, you're so great. <laughs> and then what happens?
1: Yeah, so I'm deep in the belly of the beast and, you know, I I worked really hard, you know, like my parents gave me this really strong work ethic and I was, yeah, of course. And I was naturally academic. And so, you know, I I was, you know, really driven to just excel at at the work that I did you know whether whether I was at law school or you know in private practice I was really excited about kind of developing my own practice as a private wealth lawyer I, I really wanted to end up kind of exclusively working with philanthropists or you know individuals that were pursuing impact investing and you know anything that was to do with using capital for good in the world that you know I was kind of addicted to and I really really wanted to get in the mix of mm. that um but I started essentially you know I qualified in 2011 which was a year after the coalition government came into power and I I can only you know I realise this now looking backwards mm. I didn't realize at the time that I was gradually becoming really politicized around mm. my work uh, because I was at the same there was this parallel process I suppose where I I was developing an understanding of the system, you know, our our systems of economy and governance and who's in and who's out of those systems. Um, And, you know, I was also becoming um, aware of this rhetoric that was being propagated by the industry that I was in. You know, obviously I worked for a, a law firm, but as a private wealth lawyer, I sat within an industry of, Um, individuals, professionals that comprise tax advisors, accountants, private bankers, investment managers, um, all sorts of people that were exclusively concerned with perpetuating, you know, the system of, of private wealth, which helps people to preserve and accumulate wealth. Um, And I started to become really troubled by these narratives around the the, the, the kind of threat of taxes going up and what this meant for the clients that we were servicing. And, you know, because to my mind, I thought, well, these people can actually afford to pay more taxes. (laughs) Right. Um, And uh, and generally you're you're paying tax when you've gained something. So I couldn't really see what the issue was. And I started it's really started to grate on me. but at the same time you know i was providing all this advice on which was helping people to minimize taxes because you know that was what i was trained to do um and that you know that was always the it was almost like the mark of um you know delivering value to a client is like how much tax can you help them save you know mm. or how can you how many tax savings can you identify in any given transaction or situation um, so yeah, so we had these election cycles mm. and I was, you know, each time there was this this kind of threat of a labor government coming into force and raising taxes. And I started to to really, yeah, become quite agitated, um, around the idea of fairness. And, you know, at the same time, I was uh, volunteering for various non- non-profits. Um, I sat on a couple of boards. I was part of the funding network, which is a, you know, uh, philanthropic community that kind of hosts live crowdfunding events for uh, nonprofits that are facilitating social change. And um, I started to realise that I was really out of sync with my own values. That's
0: so fascinating. Yeah. So you've been studying, working, so you're qualified now, you're working and you've been, you're, you're doing very, very well. Yeah, but You're almost hating what you do.
1: I wasn't hating it, um, at the, I was becoming more uncomfortable with it. it. I think it was once I had the, you know, I was on my own personal trajectory of trying to achieve my own economic stability, you know, mm. and um, and I think once I reached a certain level, I had more breathing space to actually reflect on my work and the Got purpose it. and meaning behind it. And I'm, I've always been someone that was driven by the idea of purpose and what, you know, I always had a sort of vocational approach to my work mm. so I I wasn't just satisfied by the idea of like making partner you know at a certain age although you know obviously that's very exciting and I was recognised in the industry, I had lots of um, accolades which was you know great to have that recognition but at the end of the day I, I knew that the only thing that was going to satisfy me was walking fully in the purpose that mm. I felt that I'd been Called to, if you will. Um, so I, I kind of began this sort of aggressive soul searching journey, wow. uh, which involved, you know, a bit of coaching, but just really interrogating, like, what are my values and what, what do those values mean for the work that I do? And I really, I started to reconnect with the values that I grew up with, you know, with my mum. Talking to me about the system when I was very young, and talking to me about what, what kind
0: of stuff would she say?
1: Well, she—I never used to understand what she meant when she talk, You know, talk, when she spoke about the system, mm-hmm. it sounded really dramatic to me. But, but you know, in retrospect, she was talking about like our, the society that we live in and the you know social protections that we have and mm. our economic system um, our political system and she talked to me about the importance of paying your taxes fully and participating in society you know my mum, was definitely known to kind of hold um, local councillors to account. Um, when, you know, people would come canvassing from the Labour Party, you know, she'd really give them a run for their I money. I love this, Auntie! She they're was, like giving them Honestly! The, but how will you make sure? That <laughs> <it>? <laughs> she really, I love it. really grilled them and... You know, at the time, you know, when you're young, you're like a little bit embarrassed and, you know, think, oh, why is she doing this? But wow, I look back and I think, wow, you know, I feel really proud of her because... She she just she just said what she thought yeah. and and she she realised that she she had a weapon as a British citizen as a person that lived here and contributed here to hold the state to account yeah. and I think that's so powerful because there's so much hopelessness in society at the moment yeah. around you know our political system um, of, co- of course it is really dispiriting to see what is happening mm. at the moment but. Even my mum, and this this would have been in the 90s where, you know, we had recession. Um, I think it would have been either, uh, I think it would have been around Major, John Major. Um, You know, there there were a lot of challenges, but she held on, she took hold of the weapon that she had, which was to stand in um, citizenship in an active way, you know, with this active posture um, and to interrogate and to challenge, but also to hold herself to a standard of, you know, paying her taxes properly and yeah. talking to us about that. So that really, I, I, I don't know what it was that reconnected me with that. And I, I just had this awakening that, you know, I, I am in the wrong job, you know, like I, I'm directly opposed to the values that were instilled in me uh, from a young age. And, um, you know, the values that I hold about wanting to live in a fair society.
0: So this is really interesting to yeah. me. Because I know people listening or watching may have had that exact same epiphany if you will um where they come to terms with the fact that okay i am not where i need to be um did you sit with that was it just like a, th- a thought at lunch or, you know
1: oh yeah i sat deep in <laughs> in all of that and <clears throat> the thing is when well, for me for my experience of this was that when this realized when this realization happened i started to panic because i thought what agency do I have to mm. like, what do I do with this? Because I'm on a really great trajectory and maybe I I make partner and I, you know, somehow try and influence from that position. Mm. But I just, I, I just realized that, you know, I, I had some coaching and, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of leaving London at the weekends and going to the coast so that I could find stillness and actually, you know, hear myself think and start to ideate, you know, on my own and, and think about what it, how it was that I could use my skills to, um, you know, create something that I believed was more productive in the world that was more, you know, enable me to be more in alignment um, with my values, but that would also kind of repurpose the, the skills and experience and the tools that I'd learned over the, you know, preceding decade. Wow. And that took time, and I think it's really important for people to to recognise that. Because I think a lot of people, as soon as they're, they they realise, oh, okay, I'm out of alignment, or I have an idea, right, I'm going to jump now. And actually, I would caution, you know, everyone's journey is different, but I would caution against that because I think that there's something magical that happens when you sit in the discomfort and the tension yeah. of realising where you're where where you are, and and to to, to create something. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a creativity that you can engage with in that process. Mm. Um, so, and it, it all came to a head for me in terms of the clarity of my thinking and this, this idea that had been started to germinate within me, which um, was I was at a party on New Year's Eve in 2019. As you are. And uh, yeah, I mean, we had no idea what was about to hit us, right? Everyone was like, 2020 is going to be amazing. I don't know if you remember the hype. So
0: 2019, (laughs) I actually, I was in a retreat um, with a bunch of guys. It was a men's retreat in Manchester and we were planning for the decade. Okay. So we were like talking about what we wanted to do, and people were standing up in that retreat saying, "I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller." I was talking about I'm going to you know, raise this much money, and it was such a they were talking about family, whatever. So we really thought we had the decade in yeah. sort of in, in, in our in our hands, and so we could do, be whatever we wanted to be. We had no clue. Yeah. What was around the corner? Yeah,
1: yeah. It was such a de- <laughs> a profound experience of the the like limitations of humanity, mate gosh, that's another conversation, but.
0: Hey there, just wanna say thank you for listening or for watching uh, this podcast. Uh, We have a great desire to grow this podcast. And one of the ways we're gonna do that is if you listening uh, follow, or if you are watching, you subscribe to the podcast. The faster it grows, um, the more guests we can get, but also the better the podcast guests. So please just do me a favor, hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Um, Back to the episode.
1: I'm at this party and uh, a friend of mine walks in and we're having a conversation. And she just, she said two things in the time that she was at this party that just catalyzed everything that has happened. Oh, I love these moments. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, uh, yeah, it was a road to Damascus moment, <laughs> right? The first, one of the things she said um, was according to Dr. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who is a Lebanese mathematician.
0: Yeah you him. might
1: yeah you, you know you probably know him <laughs> <laughs> no. um, he says the, the most the three most harmful addictions in life are heroin carbohydrates and a monthly paycheck and I was like wow ouch
0: you felt seen <laughs> yeah
1: yeah no I I. not only did I feel, feel seen I wanted like I wanted like, <laughs> like hide under the table so I just felt wow yeah that's me plus mm. you know all my peers. The second thing she said to me that was really profound was that there were more food banks than McDonald's in the UK and somehow in my mind you know I put these two things together and I just thought I cannot continue to stay in a career that doesn't align with my values no matter how stable it is um, because it provides that you know mm. monthly income that is not to be sniffed at, right? But but I, I, I didn't want that comfort um, to kind of desensitize me and kind of make it okay for me to continue living in a society where there's more food banks than the most popular fast food chain in the world. Because to me, that was, when I heard that, I just thought, what, what an indictment on our society, mm. but also I felt slightly ashamed that someone had to tell me that, that I wasn't aware of that statistic myself, you know, because I was involved in the nonprofit world. I was involved in various kind of social change initiatives. And I I didn't know that that that's where we were at, you know, Mm. since the Trussell Trust opened its first food bank in I think it was 2000, 2001 that we we've now when we're now seeing this scaling of food banks that's where we're at as a society and i just thought okay i i i can't and and so shortly before that i had been working on this i had been kind of developing this idea of like what could it look like to provide alternative wealth advisory services that center redistribution, that create a kind of an ecosystem that, that allows value Z wealth holders to really integrate their values across their wealth stewardship, their business ownership, all areas of influence in their life. And and so this had been stirring up within me. And then it was like, when I heard this, when I had this experience on New Year's Eve, it was just like, boom, this is it. Like, yeah. I, I, I have to... There's no turning back, you know,
0: so did you continue to party or did you rush out with your bag to run home and start to brainstorm? And-
1: <laughs> I continued to party hard and uh and then when i i I got back uh you know th- before I went back to work i I did some a lot of crazy mind mapping, and uh yeah, things kind of developed from there
0: so you then handed them your notice
1: not immediately no ah. no so i i i worked on kind of refining um the proposition and my ideas as well you know i i did a lot of research i spoke to a lot of like wealth holders Got it. um obviously we went into um lockdown in march 2020 shortly before then i went down to four days a week um, at my job so I, I dropped today and you know partly just because I wanted to be in the real community yeah R- you remember I spent 12 years you know living that life in the city you know commuting in and out of the city and your world becomes quite small actually
0: which people you work with none of you work people on your team or working on a specific project are the people you talk to every day yeah and the, the conversation sort of shallow and
1: yeah, I mean, I had a fabulous team, right? They're mm. they're amazing. I attribute much of my success to them and their ability to create the conditions that I, you know, that enable me to thrive. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I had the loveliest team in in the firm, and you know, it it, it was it was a really wonderful experience. And it was still, you know, particularly when you're dealing with wealth every day, your world becomes very, very small um, and your reality, your exposure to the world is seen through a particular lens. And I it's almost like I just wanted to spend time like going into shops and cafes in my high street to to understand, like, what is life like for people just in the regular community, like in my community? but obviously i i ended up having a lot of time on my hands to kind of work on this idea and figure out okay what is it that this could look like what are the values and kind of political you know framing that yeah. that should um govern like what i do next and and yeah so it developed quite significantly from from there
0: so now you're modern day robin hood i'm joking <laughs> you're not robin hood um but now it's odd so initially and I guess this really wasn't what you were doing, but it could be phrased like that. It was like, how do we extract money, if you like, from the proletariat? I'm joking now. How do we take money <laughs> from, the, from the bottom, so to speak, and kind of help it concentrate more at the top? And you've done a, a, a 180, and that now your yeah. work is about how do we help folks who do have power, resource, or whether it's you know, various forms of capital, how do we help them steward it and essentially allow it to not trickle down I know that's kind of a a politicized term but how do we get that money out of their hands and into the hands of ordinary people essentially
1: yeah I mean we're we're a supporting people to steward their wealth in line with their values and and that's a really interesting process because you know if you believe in a fair society and, and you believe that we should all have access to certain public services. We should all be living to a certain standard of of living. Um, you know, what does that mean for you? With in terms of the level of wealth that you have, in terms of how you're engaging with the tax system and mm. whether you're engaging in tax avoidance, and these are the kinds of conversations that we have with our clients. And and you know, we unpack um, these ideas. Oh, I,
0: I, I think, and this is this happened. I mean, we should confess and say that I, you know, we've had a chat similar to this before when we were going to exeter is it was it exeter where is it cornwall Cornwall. To the Eden Project. not london because <laughs> <laughs> we were both speaking at this event and it was interesting because the first thing i thought when you talk about what, what you do is i thought there's no way you have any clients <laughs> <laughs> I just
1: thought, yeah
0: what kind of rich person I know. or what kind of person who has wealth would willingly be like how do i how do i like you know get rid of this or steward it in a much more like so so like how does that work
1: it's astonishing actually because it's it's (laughs) it's 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 funny because people are like you know are you solvent like do you you know um (laughs) um, but but it's yeah it's really interesting because and i always said from the beginning i i'm not looking to convert people i you're probably familiar with the the bell curve and the law of diffusion of innovation which says that the first 2.5% um, are, of any um, of the adoption of, when it comes to the adoption of any a new innovation, the first 2.5% are the innovators, the next 13.5% are the early adopters. So I'm going for those guys, like that's who we focus on. So people tend to come to us already with a sense of they, they have more than they need. They have too much money mm. and it makes them feel uncomfortable. And actually sometimes it makes them feel deeply anxious. Um, that they're living out of alignment with their values.
0: Quickly, are those people, people who inherited the money or people who actually made it through, you know, business or, or things like that? It's
1: a mixture, actually. I think, that, I think there's probably a slightly higher um, uh, kind of concentration of, of people that are inheritors. Um, and, and, you know, invariably, people that create wealth have, you know, have had some help. A lot of the time, and so there's maybe maybe the bulk of the wealth, their wealth was created through entrepreneurship or you know their professional life, but maybe they, you know they had a little bit of help. But um, yeah, I would say there is definitely a bias towards inheritors. But no, certainly there's a growing number of people that have created wealth mm. that simply think that it, they have too much. They don't need it all, and they and nor do they want their children to have all of that wealth. And they want you know not only them and their family to be thriving. They want to share the abundance that they have with society, to build the society that, you know, that we all want to live in. And so, so there's this kind of two pronged or two led uh, approach w- with our work, which is that we're helping people to sleep at night by living in alignment with their values, but we're also supporting them to make choices around their wealth that change the system, that seeks to So everything that we do is underpinned by this idea of building the new economy.
0: The good economy sounds obviously Great, because the economy and I think we we covered this a, a few weeks ago is a lot of things, but essentially it's everyone that sells and buys <laughs> you know that that might be the simplest definition you can you can come up with um and i and I guess there is this sort of and i mean you've had you no know, greater proximity to them, but th- there is this idea that rich people are evil right and Hence, why I I think there's a mental block to thinking rich people would willingly want to let go of riches because it feels like is isn't the whole point of money to accumulate more of it, and and isn't money in in, in and of itself sticky such Mm. that you know the more you have, the more valuable it is, and so people are a bit scared to let go of anything. Yeah, it took me a real mental, it took me a whole train journey to be like, maybe there are people who have conceived of what enough is.
1: Yeah, all seeking to, seeking to you, rather. you know, to understand. Um, the point that you say, you you make about rich people being, you know, I, seen as evil or, you know, the maligned in society. I think there's a double-edged, I think there's a kind of, because wealthy people in society are revered mm. as well as. This you, is interesting, You That's know, true. there's a really interesting duality there, I think, with, people will listen to what wealthy people have to say
0: this is true as well right? it had more sort of
1: yeah i mean this is you know the the i don't know if you've come across the patriotic millionaires which are a, a group of millionaires and billionaires they it started in the us but there's now a growing community in the uk um that is essentially a, an advocacy group uh, of, of mil- millionaires and billionaires who are campaigning um for progressive tax reform they are um raising the profile of the destabilizing effect of inequality on our economy and they're using their voices to campaign for higher taxes on themselves yeah which is fascinating in and of itself but there is definitely a growing definitely a, a i think a growing sense of critique and yeah. scrutiny on, on on wealthy people in society and how wealth is created and you know i i I think a lot of people can, you know, when when they hear us talk about, you know, extreme wealth being bad for society, you know, people are so comfortable talking about extreme poverty in this kind of paternalistic, almost, almost neo-colonial yeah. way, but nobody wants to talk about extreme wealth because that's the other side of the coin, right? Mm. When, when we talk about extreme poverty um, people that are being extracted from um, for the benefit of others. Um, and... um I've lost my train of thought.
0: But, but no, 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 it, was, I, it was about
1: the it was about the way that the wealthy individuals are, are perceived. But pe- people will still people people do listen to. You know, society worships rich people. Look at look at social media. Look at what pe- folks are aspiring to. Like, look at who is kind of who are the influencers. They're people that are making a ton of money. Yeah. you know, and it's not. Y- y- you know we we i think a lot of people feel threatened about the the ultimate message that we have around the creation of an economy that serves everyone, not just the one percent we're not demonizing wealth we're raising a question about how wealth is created and maintained mm. because it it doesn't happen in a vacuum mm. wealth doesn't happen in a you know wealth isn't created in a vacuum if we look at how uh big corporations uh make wealth uh, create wealth for their shareholders look at how well or not as the case may may be employees are being paid look at how um structures are set up in order to divert profits through different jurisdictions to avoid paying fair taxation you know it's it's not difficult to see to trace kind of um where uh how, you know, how wealth is, is, is being generated mm-hmm. and amassed and accumulated.
0: Well, I've, I've got a, a series of questions for you then, mm. I suppose. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm a trained lawyer, so <laughs> I'm ready for you. Which is,
0: uh, which is sort of, okay, well, I, 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 you know, we can, there's two which are related One is these patriotic millionaires you speak about. I think I've heard of kind of, you know, the gift fund and the kind of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oh, the 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 Giving Pledge and and so on and so forth. Um, Something feels odd about folks who've spent years, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: if if we put our Marxist Mm -hmm. kind of lens on, extract extrapolating value Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. denigrating the working, class, whatever you wanna call it. They've gotten super, super rich. Mm -hmm. And now, I guess maybe to absolve themselves of some guilt, they're now sort of trying to quote unquote, change the system. The system that allowed them to get rich, they now wanna make it harder for other people to get rich. So it's also a sense of like, hold on a minute. So you're happy, you've made your money, you're super rich, you're giving away some of your money, and now you wanna change the system to make it harder for other people to accumulate wealth. So they can't be as rich as you. That, that seems odd.
1: It's 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 uncomfortable, isn't it? Can you, you can feel it. I can I feel, feel it.
0: I don't have the millions, I, so I, I'm okay.
1: I feel the discomfort of mm. having spent 10 years helping probably some of these, you know, kind of people of that um, level of wealth yeah. to accumulate more wealth and to avoid taxes. That's part of my story. It's also, you know, part of why I'm able to do this work and, um, you know, really attempt to, to change the system because i have kind of insider knowledge i suppose and you know i like i i, I explained earlier about repurposing the tools that i learned in practice and so by this you know in the same vein these individuals yes they have benefited from the system and they're they're holding their hands up to that, you know, they and they continue to benefit from that system, albeit, you know, they make certain choices within that, whether it's to cap their wealth or redistribute considerable sums of wealth to, you know, ensuring that they're not in, engaging in tax minimization. Um, and and so I think it's a I think it's a really good example of maybe what's not happening in or well, maybe not. Maybe not. What's not happening in society, but the ability to exercise that muscle of the yes and
0: hmm. of
1: yes, yes. The facts are that they have benefited um, in an ex- in extreme form from the current economic system, and it, and and they they they're now critiquing it, a system that they they continue to benefit from.
0: Yeah, but, and we, can, we can't take them seriously, surely, if that's the case. If if you're still benefiting. And you want to essentially erode my, the benefits I could have as I'm on my way up sort of building. It, it just doesn't seem fair. But
1: I think this is precise, precisely the point because I think it illustrates how it's the system that is designed to perpetuate their benefits from this, of, the, of, of our economic system. It's, it's systemic and structural. You know, it's at a policy level. Yeah. You know, having taxation, low, low taxes on wealth... You know, that's a political choice. You know, we're we're living at a time where, you know, I think we're at forty year high still with, you know, inflation. People can't feed their children, they're having to choose between heating their homes and you know, feeding themselves. And the government has consistently this government has consistently um ignored calls to reform the way our tax system works, because at the moment wealth is significantly undertaxed. Absolutely. So I, I think that I I think that while you know you you say you can't take them seriously, they're critiquing the system, which continues to ensure that they benefit. Yeah. Um. And it's not about saying that we don't want you know other people to benefit from wealth creation. It. it you know, it's not, it's about saying that we should all, we want to create, make the system fairer for everyone so that we don't end up having these, um, you know, concentrations of of wealth in pockets of society.
0: I take your point. I think what what an ordinary person might say, and I know this because I actually, you might, you're the good person to ask this actually because I tweeted not too long ago the fact that, hey there, just want to say thank you for listening or for watching uh, this podcast. Uh, We have a great desire to grow this podcast and one of the ways We're going to do that is if you listening uh, follow or if you are watching you subscribe to the podcast the faster it grows um, the more guests we can get but also the better the podcast guests so please just do me a favor hit the subscribe button or the follow button Um, back to the episode the UK must be one of the worst countries for wealth creation if you start from the bottom Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's you know you're taxed in like 12 places and then they're like, come on, we support the wealth builders, and you go, hold on a minute, you've got council tax, which I, I hate with every fiber in my being. I would I, I would like it if if there was actually a sense of community in the council, but away from that. Council tax, road tax, there's ULES has been expanded, there's income tax, income um, Come on, there's, there's more. I'm sure people yeah. listening can, can I mean, comment below. About, there's so much tax just for the ordinary yeah, person trying to get by. 100%. It's too much.
1: Yeah, and, and this is one of the points, is that the, the ordinary people, you know, bear, you know, proportionately, they, they pay a lot more tax out of their income than, you know, people that maybe, um, you, you know, they, they earn their income from their wealth. Yeah. Right, rather than...
0: Actually doing work.
1: Exactly, or, you know. exactly. Um and so the burden of taxation, as it were, falls on ordinary people. And well that's 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 not fair. Um, particularly in the context of the last, you know, thirty years or so where wages have been stagnating in real terms. Um so so I, I, I do understand the frustration, particularly and the point that you make about you know you're trying to create wealth from from the bottom when you've had nothing you know invariably many people that have created wealth have had that help because money makes money yeah. um, you know and that's a result of wealth preservation and accumulation passing down um dynastically or yeah. you know and um, and also appreciate that there is this tension of you know in 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 many communities and racialized communities where People haven't been able to create generational wealth. You know, they're also asking, well, "What does this mean for me?" Like, I want to create wealth for my family, and yeah. and and you know, it, it's 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 not about saying that that's wrong at all. It's it's about trying to build an economic system which minimizes harm to individuals and communities and enables us to generate wealth collectively um, in a way that ensures kind of shared abundance and Mm. and prosperity for everyone.
0: Hey there, just want to say thank you for listening or for watching uh, this podcast. Uh, We have a great desire to grow this podcast. And one of the ways we're going to do that is if you listening, uh, follow or if you are watching, you subscribe to the podcast. The faster it grows, um, the more guests we can get, but also the better the podcast gets. So please just do me a favor hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Um, back to the episode. So, in your ideal world, if you're, you know, it's always good to ask folks who run, say, nonprofits or businesses that have social kind of good at the end of it mm. what does you, what would have to happen for you not to exist? So, essentially, what does, success look like for you i hope you know you have a kind of a conception of why you wouldn't be needed because this is one of the ways to almost distrust some charities that that their survival is dependent on the problem being perpetuated which makes you kind of go hmm so you want to end world hunger but really you have no concept of world hunger ended and so you're just kind of this perpetual whatever so yeah which I, i you know it's always scary to think about but I guess for you, what does success look like in your ideal world? Is it a world where there's no billionaires? Is it, because another question to add to that one, you know, once you answer that is, is it even possible to become a millionaire without exploiting people?
1: Well, this is a great question. And, you know, <laughs> this is, is a great question and we should have this conversation about you know, I, I don't know. May, there are there are there are lots of factors that come into play, like around. You know, it's it's interesting because like we live in London, right? And lots of people are technically millionaires in London because they're sitting on property, because uh, asset prices have increased. You know, skyrocketed in some cases over the last you know twenty thirty years uh, because of speculation. You know, and because uh, uh, many wealthy people have been able to accumulate. You know acquire like property build up their portfolios that's you know pushed up um asset prices so lots of people are millionaires in london it's really interesting but just just coming back to your question about what success looks like for us yeah. we're i mean we're a really odd organization in that you know the the world of private wealth private wealth advisory specifically is very hidden from kind of mainstream society so it it is, you know, I have this particular set of skills and experience in the private wealth industry that I'm leveraging mm. in, or in service of a new economy essentially. If we exist in our current form, doing the same thing, you know, supporting individuals and families on a you know, consultancy basis, helping them to set limits on their wealth, helping them to navigate um, their practices around tax, ensuring that they're in alignment with their values and pursuing redistribution in a way that is very strategic and that creates to the, the, the development of a new economy that is just and fair, then we will have failed. Because we, the idea is that we're pioneering a different form of, uh, wealth, of wealth advisory practice that ideally will inspire um, other, you know, professionals in you know in, in current who are currently in uh, mainstream um, private wealth industry mm. to adopt the, the methods and practices that we are pioneering through our practice and and hopefully we will see in the coming years a new generation of wealth advisory firms that are exclusively dedicated to supporting uh wealthy individuals uh with supporting the new economy and supporting them around alignment of their you know their their wealth stewardship with their their values and and you know our hope is that this does lead to um you know advice that doesn't operate on these two main assumptions that a everybody wants to accumulate as much wealth as possible you know regardless of how much they have and regardless of how much they need and you know the second assumption being that everybody wants to minimize as much tax as possible um you know ultimately we 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 don't want to exist the only reason we we do exist is because we've come in to disrupt the private wealth industry because What we provide doesn't exist, but we hope that we won't have to exist so so that uh, because our practices and our model of, um, you know, advisory service will be replicated by Mm. other firms.
0: So how has your work been received, especially because you're a disruptor? (laughs) (laughs) how
1: <laughs> sounds very serious how's no, your work been received how is it, <laughs> by whom <laughs>
0: <laughs> how, how, yeah how has it been because you know when you do one you're shedding light on a very sort of private world i said at the start yeah. you know a lot of people are like just exi- what's what's, yeah. what's going on yeah. what, the kind of thing people don't know this exists yeah. but then two um yeah so so one you shining light on it, it already makes a, a couple of people uncomfortable i remember um what was it I think we were, we were in the House of Lords for one of these meetings about uh, wealth. And there was this man, he came to speak to us all about sort of, so he, he had a Sunday rich times list you know, with him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, here are the top 10 people. And he's like, they're not the richest in the country. And we were like, oh, no way, it's not Richard Branson, what's going on <laughs> kind of thing. And he was like, this is declared wealth. These are people who want you to know that they're billionaires or they're millions, whatever. He says, the, he says the kind of clientele he has, who he helps to manage their affairs, will never want you to know that they're rich. Like they have undeclared wealth, they have wealth held in all sorts of in blind trust and all these kind of interesting sort of um, uh, ways. So like that, my eyes opened when he was like, this is not even, this is not the top 10 rich people in the country at all. Um, and so, your work of advocacy of just shining light. You're twitching. Is there? Is there <laughs> <laughs> T- tell me
1: the dark world <laughs> of blind trusts.
0: You're like, you know too much. We, we must, we must eliminate it. <laughs> so amusing. Anyways, so you you shedding light on this is already like a mind like for people. Yeah. But I imagine there's people who don't want you to succeed.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a very, like, confronting message, isn't it? Mm. Um, And it's a, you know, it's the behaviors around accumulation are shaped by, you know, this scarcity mindset and narrative and, you know, the the kind of implicit, um, there's an implicit understanding that, you know, the purpose of our economy, the way that we have organized ourselves, as a society and the way that we organize our resources, you know, over the last hundred years, it's all designed to accumulate um, wealth for, you know, a certain group of people. And the idea of creating a more, you know, level playing field means that, you know, some people will lose power and control Mm. and wealth and that, that's that's a, you know, there are people that are willing to, to do that, you know, to go on that journey themselves and we're working with those people. Um, but even then it's hard, you know, you're completely having to rewire a mindset that you may have grown up with, um, or, you know, your peers reinforce every day, but also, you know, it's just the water that we're swimming in. That's just the way things have always been. Mm. Um, And, you know, policy reinforces this and corporate ownership reinforces this. And, and it's yeah, it's definitely not an easy message to digest. And of course, there are people that are fundamentally ideologically opposed to, you know, some of the. Values that we espouse as an organisation and some of our analysis around the fact that we live in an extractive, you know, an economy which relies on extraction and exploitation for the purpose of wealth accumulation and concentration, and that that economic system is fundamentally, you know, unsustainable, yeah. and we're going to have to transition to another form of economy, and in order to make that transition a just transition. Um, certain things need to happen to get to a regenerative economy that serves everyone and, and ensures that we're living within planetary boundaries. You know, there's a whole ecological element that we could talk about that, that you know, I won't go into in detail now. But um, some people just don't agree with that analysis. Yeah. And there are the people that agree that, well, you know, like I, I can continue to accumulate wealth even, you know, through impact investing. And, yeah, and just offset and then, it with sort yeah, of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. And... There's 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 yeah, there there is in my mind there's social impact and there's social justice. And the difference between the two is that with social justice people are prepared to lose and divest themselves of power. Um and that's not easy. It's really not. Um and so I think I just concentrate on the people that are, you know, that we're, you know, we're working with the people that support this message or and at least are prepared to, to interrogate because that's how my journey started. It started with me looking at myself and all the things I was doing, you know, all the good I was doing, all my ethical side hustles and actually looking at myself as an actor in the global economy, like me as a body in the global economy. What is the the kind of net impact here yeah. someone who is helping the rich get richer helping them to minimize taxes and then doing all this good over here actually what you know what's my net contribution to society mm. and that that was really hard for me and i took a really bold decision to come out of that system and to disrupt and to contribute towards building the new um and I don't know. You know, we have a, a lot of great supporters, and of course, there are people that you know are, are opposed to our work or maybe don't really understand it, and that's that's fine because you know, every everyone's on a journey yeah. of some sort. Um, no,
0: I, I I mean, I love your personal journey, at least as you as you've articulated it, because. It starts with interrogation, as you said, which is something everyone can do. And, you know, it's always important to acknowledge privilege. I know we are privileged in that when, once you've, as you said, you know, even in your journey, you had to sort of get to a position where you had enough money, perhaps, to, to be able to look back or drop down a day at work where a lot of people may be just like, I just need as many hours as possible. And it, so it means it may not be their time to have that kind of conversation. Yeah. However, putting it, you know, you know you know, in front of you and, and at some stage visiting it is is empowering because because it comes from an honest space it doesn't really matter what the reception is like because you you it was never a sort of this is gonna be the next big thing it, it was never no. that it's coming from a, a much deeper place no. um i mean it's black history man from america so i suppose i have to ask you this which is some people listening or watching might be like she's a black woman navigating mm. these spaces is it safe for her <laughs> How is she doing it? what kind of experience is she is she having or do you just not really think about
1: well i I think it's i I think it's a really interesting like political statement in a way mm. that like as a black female body na- navigating leadership in this way you know in the in the context of you know Pursuing a fairer economy, I think, is a really interesting political <laughs> dynamic in and of itself, right? Given the history of extraction mm. um, that we've seen, uh, and you know, through colonization and enslavement, and and you know, ongoing you know v- violence ag- against black bodies around the world, and, you know, um, and so I find that really interesting to be to to have stepped into uh, this role. Um I, I it, it's it's a journey Mike mm. it's it's it, <laughs> What does that
0: mean? It's
1: a, it's a journey. <laughs> I um I get the support that I need, you mm. know. I I I it was obvious to me from the beginning that you know, this is it's you know, it's a huge deal kind of taking up this space in the world talking about extreme wealth. Um You know, coming from a working class background, being the daughter of Ghanaian migrants, um, you know, it's I, I also had really great training for it because I was in the private wealth industry, which is, you know, I felt I always felt like a bit of an anomaly in the industry. And, you know, I. I went to events where let's just say the people assumed I wasn't supposed to be there yeah. <laughs> or, you know, they mistook me for someone else that, you know, wasn't a uh, a private wealth practitioner. So I'm kind of used to it. So
0: when you, when you get that, do you just kind of water off a duck's back sort of thing or are you... You know, what, how do you, because I've had that many times as well, <laughs> events and you know, where people can I go? Are you not meant to be there? You're like, uh, I am. I mean, it happened funny enough when I was working in the House of Parliament for a bit. I, I, I worked in the facilities department for a little while and literally going in was like, all those be walking around and someone would be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm at work sort of thing. You know? <laughs> Cause they're like, they just think I've sort of wandered in where I shouldn't be. Yeah. I suppose things are probably better now. So how, how do you react when, uh, when that happens?
1: It's gosh, it's like training a muscle, isn't it? But it, but then at the same time, the muscle rem- muscle memory. Uh, when I was young, a lot younger, I mean, it really affected me. I think mm. just um, because it just every time something like that happened, it made me f- feel like it was reinforcing a message that well, you don't belong here, do yeah. you? You're not you're not actually meant to no, be not here. From me, are This is not. <laughs> yeah. This, this ain't your patch. Yeah. It never will be. You know, but. Um, So it's been a long, long, long journey of developing confidence in, yeah, who I am. But, you know, there's one thing that trumps everything, you know, even if, you know, something happens that, you know, knocks my confidence or, you know, someone says something really inappropriate. The thing that no one can ever take away from me is that I have a vision that is so compelling that it led me to like effectively blow up my career.
0: Mm.
1: And I have such conviction in the vision and the purpose behind the Good Ancestor Movement. And no one can take that away from me. And that's what gives me confidence and courage and gives me an enormous amount of, enormous sense of empowerment in just standing in um, who I am and my story and my experiences that have set me up to do this work. And that's what kind of what I stand in every day. And I was telling you about the, um, the Fight the Power documentary, yeah. but that's, you know, you've really got to watch it because it's all about, you know, how hip hop cha- changed the world. And it's funny because um fight the power is my song you know fight the power by public enemy if i know i have to have a difficult meeting with someone or maybe you know before speaking gigs or you know anytime i'm really nervous or i'm doubting myself i listen to that song and it reminds me that i'm not alone like i'm part of this continuum of um people working in uh, social and economic justice and uh, freedom fighters and People fighting against all kinds of systems of oppression that have gone before me. And I'm just part of that continuing kind of cohort of, of people that are trying to change the system. And it is really hard. But um, yeah, that song really helps.
0: I love that. that. I mean, folks should add that to their uh, playlist. Definitely. But you know, it, it's I'm glad you kind of answered it that way, to be honest, because I think it's so important for people listening and watching to know. I think when people see... And I get this all the time, like for one, I'm introverted, which is always shocking to people like, no way. And it's like, yeah, I don't really like people, you know, I just find interactions very draining. Yeah, Yeah, that's the one. But I think with you, I think when people see competent people, they always assume they're like super confident, type one, let's get it all the time, not realizing that, you know, trying to systems change can be very bewildering because as you as you said you're both a participant and someone trying to sort of change it so you've got to on a daily basis almost navigate contributing but also trying to kind of take back your contribution and mm-hmm. you know and rework it but then at the same time it's like when you're an early adopter or an innovator you you are very much in your imagination all the time because you have to imagine (laughs) the thing you're building that doesn't exist and the Mm. thing you have currently doesn't look it doesn't always look like the thing you imagine so Mm. you've got to be able to sort of almost like an old testament prophet in a way hold hold this vision (laughs) in your head and slowly walk towards it right knowing that hey you know one day i may see something that that looks exactly like what i see, see in my head but right now we're sort of on the journey there, and that's very disconcerting. It's very difficult. It means you lack confidence. I've literally gone to rooms where they're like, "Oh my god," and I'm kind of like, you know, because I just don't. I'm like, this is not even what I want yet, you know. But uh, yeah, thanks, you know, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? it is. It's really hard, and you feel that there's that that Old Testament prophet kind <laughs> of piece really, really uh, speaks to me. Um, And but there's there's a again there's this like. Tension between having a vision that is so clear, mm. but then having to be prepared to flex and to pivot and to to allow it to not be static, mm. to not hold to your vision too tightly that you're that you become really rigid about the way it's worked out, um, and. Yeah, it's 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 really challenging and, you know, for a long time I just felt like, gosh, I'm just winging it, you know, mm. you feel like you're winging it, but this is what I'm learning and particularly as someone who's come from quite a risk averse background, coming from a risk averse family okay. or like having a risk averse background and then joining a really risk averse profession as a lawyer where you're, you know, everything is so fixed, it's, it's what you're like in this fixed mindset and then it was never in my plan to become an entrepreneur. Mm. <laughs> and then learning that, oh, actually you learn by doing and you learn by like making mistakes and the things that don't go so well. And it's, you know, it's can be such a uncomfortable process like yeah. learning to just live in that permanent state of discomfort and you're, you're permanently growing. But it's also immensely rewarding um, seeing something that you've created take on a life of its own um and to just have the opportunity to learn and create every day. Yeah. It's a great privilege.
0: Well, I think you're doing brilliant work. I don't think you need me to say that, but <laughs> I think you're doing brilliant work. You you are in many ways to an upstream. So naturally the current may be against you, but I think at some stage um, the current is hopefully aligned, right? And it's and it's kind of like helping you, you know, achieve even more. Um, I think I think the work you do is one of the works that kind of has to succeed you know i, I think it, 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 any systems change it just can't be from the bottom up it, it it will take too long it will it's hard it's an undue amount of pressure to put on ordinary people so you kind of need both extreme ends to play ball if you like and I guess you know the the more you succeed the more we have uh people playing ball well I suppose Liz Truss wrote an article not too long ago, literally a few days ago, saying she's coming back. Um, Don't know what that means, but she spoke about how, I I guess she's trying to position herself as a visionary. You know, we do need tax cuts. We do need to kind of um, realize the... the, the The prophetic claim she makes she made in her Britannia Unchained book that you know we need the wealth creators to be set free from taxation so they can create more and they can you know and and that's sort of what she believes and really she represents you know a much larger group of people you know that's what they think will lead the UK into this kind of prosperous post-Brexit world and and stuff like that. I guess to, to wrap this up what's your sort of Response to that mindset that we we need a second go at trickle down economics.
1: Yeah, I I find it really dispiriting hearing about that. And the you know my response would be prosperity for whom? Because we we know that those policies they don't change the system. They don't enable everyone to benefit and and thrive. They come often at the cost of you know, a, 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 a state that's able to provide for everyone fairly, provide the conditions that are required for everyone to flourish. You know, you think about our public services that, um, you know, nurses are on strike. Um, you know, every everyone's on strike. It feels like yeah. the whole country's on strike. And I, you know, I think this idea of, you know, we could have a much longer conversation about it, but at the end of the day, there's no escaping that, you know, wealth is created in a vacuum and, and there are implications for ordinary people who don't have good quality work and they don't have good quality pay. And, um, you know, they're, they're not able to benefit from public infrastructure, which is really enabling them to thrive in life. And, you know, I, I recognise that, of course you know, of course we want to be able to position people to create wealth, but, you know, the idea that tax cuts particularly tax cuts on the wealthy are going to be the perfect panacea to bringing britain into prosperity um you know those those they would that, you know that would be exercising political choices in in favor of a very small elite um proportion of of the population and would just serve to you know, continue to increase the already horrendous gap between the rich and poor. And that in itself, you know, wealth inequality at this time, I think is an existential threat for our society. Mm. It is dangerous. Um, You know, it it means that we're at risk of ordinary people not being able to spend in the real economy. And once that stops happening, we're toast.
0: And on that note... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again for being part of this conversation. (laughs) You have to come back. We've got to talk about taxation another time. I think we've got to break it down, yeah. In good detail. Because I I think we probably even have varying perspectives. I was going to say,
1: you could invite, you know, we can invite some polarity into the space. (laughs) (laughs) Bring in a right wing think tanker. You know, we can have some really generative discussion.
0: Let's do it. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: I want more than just a piece want to be heard from the west to the east. I worked in my craft and I prayed for my time on the scene. The man have never left my team. 19, love the right cream. Now I'm not a right breed, but I might be. In my crease, now kids hit at my G. I'll still never sell out my theme. Well, you know about heritage. You go inherited. Don't chill with the snakes but the flow. Still venomous. Perspective is everything. So much lemonade. I don't know what a lemon is.